In some ways, you, you kind of learn how to write just by doing it a lot. Um, I know I, I learned how to write this novel by writing the novel. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write, a show where we talk to authors, writers, and creators about the stories they struggle to tell. I'm Kyle. I'm Jeff. I'm really and tired. we are in the same room. That's tired, Jeff. Uh, we're in the same room, so you may hear a little bit of an echo right now. We're going to try our best to get rid of it, but we have one microphone talking to the other microphone, and it won't stop no matter how many times we tell it to. Um, they're just very interested in each other. It's hard to help. But anyways, this week on the show... Um, or actually, before we get to this week on the show, Jeff has something to announce about a Twitter contest. Yeah, so this week, we uh, two weeks ago with Colin Barrett's episode, we ran a Twitter giveaway. Uh, we're going to do another one this week with the guest of this week's show, uh, Nathan Hill, author of The Knicks. So just at the end of the show, tweet us what you thought. Uh, you know, Retweets don't really count because it's really hard to distinguish who is who. So just... Uh, <laughs> We don't want to do any of that legwork. Yeah, so just send out like a message saying, like, I thought this about the show. I don't even care if it's not a good thought. Just tell us what you thought. Um, and anyway, we'll send out a DM on Twitter for the individual who won a copy of Young Skins from Colin Barrett. Uh, that was from two weeks ago. We got a bunch of you guys tweeting at us, so guys and girls tweeting at us, so uh, we were pretty happy with that. So thank you. And who's on the show this week, Jeff? This week on the show, we have Nathan Hill, author of a book called The Knicks, which came out last August. Uh, it won pretty much every like best of award that you could win. Uh, and he had like blurbs from R.L. Stein, John Irving, all kinds of other amazing authors. The paperback for that book actually came out this week, so you can pick up the, the easier-to-carry copy. Uh, and... You know, I have to say, this book was was one of the most structurally structurally sound uh, stories that I have read in a long time. And say that it was a fantastic book to read. Uh, it's a real page turner, as my mother would say. It really is. It's a it's a great book. Uh, and we we talked to Nathan about like how he came to write it, what his career looked like before the book and after the book. Uh, what it was like meeting somebody like John Irving, who praised the book and said that he was like Hemingway, uh, which is must be a pretty amazing thing to hear from anybody, let alone John Irving. Uh, and then we also chatted with him about um, the actual structure of like a publishing contract and how authors make money, um, which I know a lot of you are going to be really interested in. Uh, so tune in. Well, let's get to the show. Welcome, Nathan. It's really good to have you. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. So I wanted to just jump right into it uh, because you, my friend, are a literary rock star. You, I, I honestly <laughs> don't think, I'm serious. I mean, if you jump on, on you know, Nathan's website, which is nathanhill.net, uh, you cannot find, well, I'm sure you can, but it's really difficult to find an outlet that not only hasn't reviewed the book, but hasn't marked it as like a top 10 of 2016 or you know you even had a couple outlets that said it was the number one book of 2016 uh rl stein said it was his favorite book of 2016 i i, I want to jump into into like how that feels and then we can back up a little bit and get to how you got to this point oh goodness uh 
Yeah, I don't know. I think I'd probably be way better answering that question like a year from now when I've had a, a chance to <laughs> digest it. Um, uh, I don't know if I'd agree with literary rock. I mean, t today, uh, you're, t you're talking me to me on a day where I like the most exciting thing I did was like, uh, I pruned some bushes in the front yard, you know, <laughs> like, it's, it wasn't exactly a rock starish kind of day. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but thanks. And uh, yeah, a lot of people, um, a, a lot of people have said some really nice things about it. Uh, I know that that in the run up to publication, uh, my wife was really, you know, excited uh, about uh, about the book and uh, and I, I, I kind of forbid excitement in the house. Uh, the house was sort of an optimism free zone because, uh, you know, so many good books are published and so many good books don't find their audiences right away. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't have high hopes for a book that was like 600 pages long by a guy nobody's ever heard of. Uh, so that it got, you know, that people are saying nice things. R.L. Stein on Twitter is saying nice things. Is sort of <laughs> I, I, I kind of actually don't know how to process it just yet. I'm just kind of, um, I've been on tour for several months and um, enjoying the hell out of it. It's actually really funny because you, you have a line in the book, uh, and I don't want to give away any spoilers, but uh, a literary agent within the book says, oh, you're going to write a thousand-page book that 10 people will read? Uh, right, so yeah. <laughs> It was just I, me, I, my own anxieties. Yeah. So talk to us about how you got to this point, because, I mean, there's a really great uh, New York Times article with Alexandra Alter talking about, like, you know, how this thing came to be. But um, in your own words, what what would you say about it? Oh, do you want the you want the origin story? Yes, please. Let's hear Genesis. OK. All right. You got it. Uh, well, uh, I had just finished uh, my. Uh, my schooling, my, my MFA program, I just finished it in 2004, and uh, for the longest time, ever since I was, you know, a teenager, I wanted to move to New York City and, like, be a writer in New York, and so I finished uh, finished my MFA in Massachusetts at UMass and, uh, and, and moved to New York in 2004, um, and, uh, and it was August that, that I moved, and, uh, and my first apartment was this sublet in Queens. Um, it was just a one-month sublet that it was just like a staging ground for me while I, I looked for a more permanent apartment, and uh, and so I, I shared this house with like like eight or nine guys who all worked on the same road construction crew who would come home in the afternoon after work and like eat hot dogs and play Call of Duty like for the rest of the day. Um, and it was a very strange place to live. I kind of loved it, and also but it was also very strange. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and so anyway, I was, I was kind of out exploring New York and looking for a, a new apartment. And one of the things that happened my first month in the city was that the Republicans were having their nominating convention at Madison Square Garden. Um, so this was 2004. This was Bush Cheney's second term. The, the war in Iraq was ongoing. And a lot of people were in town to protest that convention. Uh, and so I went down into Manhattan to watch all of the protests. Um, so fast forward to the end of the month. Uh, I have found a new apartment, but there's this weird day where I have to be out of my sublet in the morning, but I can't move into my apartment until the evening, having something to do with cleaning it. And um, and so I kind of stupidly put all of my stuff in my car and went to work and came back at the end of the day ready to move and found the car was empty. Um, somebody had broken into it while... I was uh, gone, and they had taken uh, my computer. Well, they had taken everything, including the computer on which I had all of my writing from grad school. So this was like three years of writing, a manuscript oh, in progress. Like all of it was just suddenly gone. 
Um, and uh, I, 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 I really don't want to, you know, rub salt in the wound. But did a small part of you, you know, feel like that was a good thing? Because you know, for the most part, people who are writing in college like are not doing their best work. No, it, it it took a it took several years for me to figure out that that was a good thing. Um, <laughs> uh, like for a while, it was, it just sucked. It just sucked. I can't imagine a more devastating occurrence. Yeah, especially since I'd wanted to move to New York for so long, and kind of had told my my whole family how I was going to move to New York, and like, you know, my family, you know, my parents were all they'd never been to the city, but they were under the illusion like, oh, you you can't go. It's there's too much crime, and I'm like, no, there's not. There's not crime. That's a that's a that's a myth about New York. You're you're you know there's more there's probably more television crime in New York City than actual crime. You know, and uh, and and then of course to have this happen in the first month it was just like really kind of humiliating. I I did salvage a few stories because I had written a thesis for graduating from from UMass, and so that thesis was on. Uh, was on the shelves of the library at UMass, so I could retype some stories. So I didn't lose everything. Um, but uh, but yeah, you're right. Like several years later, I realized that like those stories are not very good, and they're, they're not going to go anywhere. And uh, and what seemed like a devastating loss of the time ended up being juvenilia. But of course, you don't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I started writing a new story after I saved up enough money to buy a new computer. And uh, the new story, I just decided to write write about something that interesting that I'd seen recently and that happened to be the the protests at Madison Square Garden and so I started writing this this story about a, a guy who was in that protest and I didn't know it at the time but that became the first words of the Knicks. What was the job you had at the time? I uh, was uh, doing the website for the Academy of American Poets. So their website is called poets.org um, and so with uh, with another person we were kind of uh, running that website so we're getting getting new poems online and and uh, and and getting freelancers to write stories or essays about about poetry and uh, and you know trying to support the the academy's various uh, missions and events and so forth. So it was a cool job. I met a lot of poets through it, a lot of a lot of writers. But um, but it was also like sitting in front of a computer screen for eight hours a day, kind of a job too. So it was it was it was strange. I, I liked it, but I also my, my eyes hurt at the end of the day. Would you consider yourself like an editor in that role? I did edit sometimes, yeah. I, I, we would assign some freelancer stories that, that we wanted done about, about a particular poet or about a particular topic, um, and, uh, and yeah, we would edit those, those pieces. And you worked for a little bit as a journalist, no? Yeah, yeah. Uh, before, before, my, uh, before grad school, uh, my first job out of college was as a, was as a newspaper reporter um, uh, for a daily newspaper, uh, and I had also written for a couple magazines and for the Associated Press. Um, and so we're going to take you all the way through this journey, by the way. So you're, it's, it's after the protest, and you sit down and you write the first words of the Knicks, but you didn't finish the book for 10 years, right? right. So what, what's the interim period look like for you? Um, how often are you writing the Knicks versus other things? What are you doing in between? Uh, did you stay at the, 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 the American Academy. Poets website? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I, I would like to say that during this time I was writing every day, but but I found it, you know, like having to, you know, commute to work, getting on the subway in time to, you know, get down to the office, you know, uh, in time, uh, ended up being really difficult. For a while there, I was trying to wake up at 6 a.m. every morning and, 
and getting get my writing done. Uh, and then I was trying to write on on lunch breaks, and then I was trying to write after after work, which was just not working at all. Um, so it ended up being a, something I was doing on on the weekends, frankly, um, because as as I'm sure you know, New York is expensive, and I found that uh, <laughs> I found that that working for a poetry nonprofit didn't exactly bring home the bacon. Uh, so, so I was doing a lot of freelance work at, at the same time and trying to cobble together a living, uh, and it didn't leave a whole lot of time for writing. So it, the the writing that I was doing. Um, came very slowly, uh, and the 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 other thing that I, I kind of recognize now about the writing I was doing at, at that time that I didn't really understand at the time was that I was very the way I describe it is careerist in in the way I was writing. You know, I just come out of an MFA program with a lot of really talented people, uh, and uh, and a lot of us moved to New York at the same time, um, and the pressure that we felt to do well was sort of crippling um I, I i know we were all keeping track of like who was publishing in what journal and who was getting lunches with which editors and so on and i remember one friend of mine actually saying something like you know we have two years to become successful or else we're just another washed up mfa'er and uh and you know two years came and went and i felt like i was a washed up mfa'er and uh, you know thinking i was this huge huge failure and um it's it's silly to say it now but it's it's very tempting to feel that way when you're kind of in the thick of it. You're, you're living in New York, you're there with a bunch of other young writers, some of them are publishing and you're not, and it just, it feels kind of awful. Um, and, and so the writing I was doing was really, it was, it was like this ongoing mission to like try to convince editors uh, of certain journals to put me in those journals so I could get lunches with agents and so on. Um, I was writing to try to advance my career, I was not writing to try to say anything true. Uh, and the writing I did was was um, predictably awful because of it. So I did a lot of writing at the time, but uh, it didn't go. I mean, I was writing towards the Knicks, but it didn't really go very well. Um, I, I remember thinking, oh, I'll finish these 150 pages, and that's good enough to show to an agent. And uh, and so I got those 150 pages done, and I was like, well, what the hell do I do now? Because no agent was interested in it at all. Um, so so I, I, I want to interrupt you for one second because I, I actually have uh... – an ed- I, I, I've been writing a little bit in my free time, and an editor came to me recently and asked me to write uh, essentially what's just clickbait. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, my argument there is, uh, you know, I'll get paid to write the thing, and, you know, no matter how mundane it is, it will help, uh, you know, kind of improve my skills as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? Because in, in one sense, that's the same argument. Like, it, I'm writing in order to improve my career, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to... And I would even argue that whatever the result of this is, is that it's going to be bad. Um, like, what what do you think, you know, is it worth the trouble, I guess, is my question? Huh. Um, well, I know from my, my journalism background, like, you know, sometimes I would write these kind of weighty, meaty newspaper type stories about, you know, scandals and politics and such. But sometimes I would write a story about the weather, you know, like sometimes my editor would be like, it's really hot today. Go write a story about how hot it is. (laughs) Oh, really? So you just like walk around, you know, I was walking around Iowa City, stopping people in the street being like, so it's hot today, huh? And they'd be like, yeah. And then I just try to search for a quote and like just put my head between my legs and try to write that story. Um, So like... At the, but even that, like, I learned to write on deadline. I learned to write when I wasn't necessarily motivated to do it. I learned to write when I 
um, uh, when the writing was 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 going poorly, but still you have to you have to get the copy out, and it has to be interesting when it when it shows up the next morning. So I I, I don't know. I think there's all kinds of of, uh, of reasons to to do that writing. I guess what I'm what I'm speaking of specifically is the kind of um, literary writing I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, I just don't I, I don't think that that you're going to write a great novel because because you set out to like write this best bestseller, you know, it's at least for me, that would never, that would never work. Um, can I, can I ask a, a development question? Do you think that phase was necessary for you to go through in order to get to where you are now, where you're, you're intentionally writing in a career way and it doesn't necessarily go very far? I do. I do. Because my reaction to that eventually was to drop out of, of publishing completely. Um, I ended up leaving New York after a couple of years and moved to Florida um, to this quiet little beach town on the Gulf of Mexico. And, uh, and I, um, I didn't, I stopped querying, I stopped uh, sen- sending stuff out to agents um, and, uh, and really just kind of wrote for myself. Um, I guess when I, when I really started writing the Knicks in earnest, when I really kind of figured out what the story was, uh, I wasn't interested in showing it to anybody. I wanted to pursue it until it was over. And so the only person who saw any of it was my wife, who, who sort of read it along, along with me. Uh, she, was, she would read it every couple nights as I, as I was writing. So she read it out of order as I was trying to figure it out. But she was the only one who read anything. Um, and that was really helpful. Like, I don't know, I'd, I'd taken so many creative writing classes and in college and then I went to an MFA program and then I, I briefly was part of a, a writer's group and and, and I had gotten really great feedback from really smart people but eventually you just have to do something that's sort of idiosyncratic you have to do something that's you and I guess I just realized it's time for me to do that I'm just time for me to do a thing that's that's just mine uh, and so I didn't want to show it to anybody and I think that that's probably a reaction to what happened um, in uh, in New York so you're you're in Naples, Florida, and you finally start writing in earnest. Mm-hmm. What is the process like from there until you start showing it to the larger world? What happens then? Well, I I, I did it I did it quite privately uh, for for years. Um, uh, my process was uh, was uh, was a process that I completely stole from from Jennifer Egan. Uh, I, I read an interview with her a long time ago where she said. She writes like this, and it just worked for me. And her process was, was that she uh, she writes. Um, I don't know if she writes by hand, but I do. Uh, and uh, and 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 the the idea is you you write five to seven pages a day, uh, and that's it. Five to seven pages. And the idea is that even when it's going poorly, when I'm unmotivated or uninspired, I can usually excrete five pages of prose. Uh, and uh, and I get to my five pages, and I kind of you know breathe a heavy sigh and say, okay, I'm done for the day. Um, but sometimes it's going really well, and the pages are coming very quickly. And I'll get to seven pages, and I could probably write several more. But I'll stop myself because I want to know exactly where I'm going to start tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, and so the next day, I'll come back and, and know where I want to be and hopefully write seven more pages and stop myself before I really needed to. Uh, and, and on and on and on. The idea being like uh, it's, it's more important to get into the habit of everyday writing uh, than it is to kind of binge on any given day. Uh, so that's what I did. Uh, five to seven pages, handwritten, and then I would type them up. Uh, and that's only what, like maybe two or three pages typed up um, a day. Uh, and the the interesting thing I found is that 
those days where it was coming more, it was, those days it was more difficult and I only got five pages done. Um, when you go back to revise like two years later, you have no memory of whether it was difficult or easy that day. Uh, and it's just, it's just pages, you know, uh, and so they all kind of blend together. Um, so it, 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 it worked for me. It's just very slow progress over a long time. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and so I would just, uh, do that hopefully every day. Now, of course, you know, sometimes life gets in the way. I was teaching at the time. Sometimes I would have a hundred papers to grade in a weekend, so I wouldn't be able to write that weekend. But as much as I possibly could, I tried to get my five to seven pages done. You finished the book and you've collected all of these, you know, random contacts and agents and publishers throughout these lunches. And, you know, uh, the, the, Association of, of American Poets is that, is that accurate? Well, uh, I, I would say no. Um, I didn't get any lunches with agents or editors. <laughs> like I was, I was a, a, a totally obscure and uh, and completely ignored by publishing. Um, yeah, I knew some poets uh, because my work at the Academy. Uh, but uh, Academy, that was it. And yeah, well, but... I mean that. I mean something there just doesn't add up because. I mean, when this book launched, you had blurbs from John Irving. Uh, you know, I, I for context, I spent uh, five years working at an independent publicity firm, and because it was a publicity firm that was of some renown, we would get these books all the time, just mailed to us. Uh, we called them brag books, where publicists all over the city would mail a book to a bunch of influential people, uh, just in the hopes that we would pick it up, read it, and recommend it to our friends, and talk about it at lunches and that kind of thing. And I think the Knicks showed up in our office like three or did four it? separate times. So, yeah, it, it did. And <laughs> so, I mean, you know, whether you knew it or not, like there was a lot of power behind this. And okay, so let, me, let me tell you a couple funny stories about that then. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, um, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen like online. I've seen people, you know, saying uh, in comments about the book, something along the lines of, you know, this came with a bunch of hype and, uh, and you know, and, it, and, 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 um, and so I immediately distrust it because we're all, you know, savvy consumers of media and anything that's pushed too hard, we kind of instinctively kind of uh, shy away from, which is which is very strange position for me because, um, you know, I got my agent simply because uh, she liked a couple short stories that I sent her. I'd never met her. Um, I, she, uh, uh, my agent is Emily Forland, and uh, she uh, represented this... Uh, um, this author who wrote a novel that I really liked, uh, and so I looked in the back of the in, in the acknowledgments page on that in that novel, um, and uh, and then cold emailed her saying, "Hey, I really like this novel. I think maybe this writer is doing something that I'm trying to do. Here's a short story. I hope you like it." She asked for a few more short stories. Uh, I sent her a few more short stories, and unbelievably, she said yes. Hmm. Uh, and then five years later, I got the novel to her. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so, like, um, you know, like that was very lucky. Like, she didn't need to be that patient, uh, but but she was. Um, and then, and then, so all right. So the uh, the, the 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 novel is completed, um, and uh, and Knopf uh, uh, buys it. Um, uh, not only not only do they buy it, you know, before this thing is published, they have sold the rights to it in fourteen different countries. Um, and my, the funny thing is my editor asks me like, um, uh, like who can we get to blurb this? What writers do you know? And I'm like, uh, none really, uh, but here's what happened. Like, uh, my wife and I decided she had this like week off of work, 
last January, like the January before the book came out. And at the same time, Norwegian Air was having this ridiculous sale uh, advertising a new line, a direct flight from Fort Lauderdale to Oslo for $150. Wow. I know. So we're like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's spend, let's, let's go to Norway. Why not? And by that time, I had sold a Norwegian translation of the book. And so I emailed my Norwegian publisher. I said, hey, I'm going to be in town. Let's have coffee. And she wrote back and she's like, as luck would have it, John Irving is here um, uh, while you're here. And we also publish him in Norwegian. So why don't we all have dinner? <laughs> and so, yeah. And so we did. And that's how I met John. And we started talking uh, and had a really nice time together. And, uh, and then he read my book after that trip. And that's how that blurb happened. It was just total happenstance and luck. Man, the stars aligned. Yeah, no kidding. I'm well aware of that. And, <laughs> and, uh, you should, you should, you know, throw us a solid and get him on the show. We, we've actually had, uh, <laughs> we, we've actually had a couple of pieces of correspondence uh, with him because I, I'm actually from Exeter, which is oh, where, yeah, yeah, which is where uh, a prayer for Owen Meany takes place. Um, but in any case, uh, so after after your ten years of struggle. You or twelve, actually, I think it was. You end up with you know, at ten years after your car is broken into and everything that you've ever written is gone, uh, you end up with this like magical publicity campaign, pegging you as like one of the top debut authors of 2016 with you know foreign rights sold all over the world, possibly a film deal. I I have no idea if you've sold the rights to that, but it would be surprising if you hadn't. Uh, you know. John Irving uh, blurbing your novel along with like you know I have to say John Irving and R.L. Stein are two authors you don't often hear in the same sentence Uh, (laughs) but and you know the shocking thing is and I don't know why this is shocking but just from my jaded years in publishing the shocking piece to me is that the book actually holds up oh thanks yeah and I mean there are just so many like poignant pieces in your writing a lot of quirks about, you know, the very mundane and the very, uh, you know, like the things that are close to all of our hearts all the time. Um, you know, for example, you have this line uh, in the book where you, you, you don't not verbatim, but you basically say, um, there are nurses in an old person home who care more about documenting injuries than the injuries themselves. Mm-hmm. And that to me was just like such... A brilliant line because it can be applied to so many different pieces it's like a metaphor for all of america today uh, <laughs> um, i mean i, I, I guess a, that was a that was a sigh that's oh uh, yeah that's that's such a sad sad line um <laughs> it's uh it's inspired by uh well like like most fiction i i think it's you know you take some you take little tiny bits of real life and and stick them into your fiction. Uh, and so the two bits of real life was, was first like watching grandparents, you know, get old and die in nursing homes and, and, uh, and, and the staff there, I mean, I'm sure it's just a kind of professional, uh, you know, a, a professional distance, but, uh, but my God, it seemed like, uh, yeah, that the staff was so much more worried about, about potential lawsuits than, um, uh, than the, than, than my grandparents. Um, and, and, uh, and then also one time I, I broke my ankle and I went into the emergency room and I was sitting around forever. And then finally a nurse came in with like a laptop and, uh, he asked me which leg, 
And like he was filling out a form on his laptop and all he had to do was look at me and he would know which leg because it was the one that was swollen with ice all over it. Um, and, uh, and, but he, he didn't even look up from the laptop and, uh, and I was just like, okay, this is, this guy's job is to just input data. Uh, and, uh, and I am just, uh, kind of preventing him from getting all the data that he needs as quickly as he wants it. So, you know, th those kinds of moments where you're like, you, you almost feel like less than human because we have this kind of, I don't know, system that requires other people to treat you such. Um, yeah, that's what went into that moment. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about, there's a lot of pieces of this book that feel like a, a larger social critique of American life in general in this modern age. Um, you know, you have things in there uh, that represent certain forms of social media. Um, Periwinkle, one of, I think, my favorite characters in the book, uh, represents just the media every man that you run into. Uh, I feel like at every media company in New York, but I, one of the things I wanted, one of the things that strikes me about the way that you've done it is the structure, and it it doesn't ever feel like uh, a towering social critique because of the way you present it through uh, these well-developed characters you follow through different decades, uh, generations even. So I wanted to talk a little bit about whether or not you encountered any resistance in structuring the book the way you did, uh, how that piece of this puzzle came together, really. Um, resistance from whom? Um, I don't even know. Honestly, I can't imagine. I mean, having talked to different authors, I can imagine a publisher being hesitant to embrace a structure like this where there's, I guess what I'm getting at, this is the first time I've seen a choose your own adventure in, uh, <laughs> is it, yeah. the, I don't know if that's where you thought I was going, but that's yeah, where I'm coming. I got from. it. I get you. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny. Uh, well, regarding Periwinkle, uh, he's he's sort of my my worst fears about New York publishing. And the the very strange thing is, I've met several New York publishers who love that character. So you go figure. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I you know I never, I guess I never really wanted it to come off as this like sanctimonious social critique. You know, like I, I I'm I'm I, I'm so not confident in my own opinions. Uh, that uh, that I didn't want to kind of be on some kind of pedestal saying, saying like I'm right. Uh, mostly, what I'm writing about is is more sort of like what what the world feels like on my nerve endings. You know, like what it's like to watch television news. You know, what it's like to bump up against political moments. Um, and so I guess that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. Like it's hard. You know, it's it's hard to listen to pop you know, pop music, or it's hard to listen to, to spend much time on social media without recognizing that part of what we're doing, part of it is just absurd. And I guess it's that absurdity that, that I was interested in. Just, um, you know, I find myself doing this, even though I'm not sure why, you know, uh, yeah. it's something I, mean, I, I think when I'm on Twitter long enough. It, it seems like it's so prescient too, because I mean, everything in this book is, is happening today. I mean, maybe not to the extent that you, you put it in there. <laughs> But I mean, it's not far off. You know, everybody. I, I know in all the reviews, everybody's talking about how, you know, uh, Governor Packer is Trump, and uh, you know, Laura is is every college kid today, and uh, Periwinkle is 
frankly, like every everyone in media. But, um, and I mean, you can make that argument, but at the same time, they're all kind of like uh, really exaggerated versions of themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think, um, well, a lot of the satire in the in the book um, is really just sort of repeating what actually happens, but giving it a slightly different name. Um, one, one of my favorite um, literary critics, uh, Victor Shklovsky, uh, talked about how uh, one of the reasons for art, one of the purposes of art is to lengthen our perception, uh, that the normal everyday world kind of becomes routinized and we get habituated to it. And as soon as we get a bit habituated to the world, we stop seeing it clearly. And so sometimes um, we need art to, uh, to remind us what the world is like. Um, he, he calls this uh, um, uh, kind of recovering the rock's rockiness. Like we take the rock's rockiness for granted, but if you can, if, if a piece of art can remind you exactly how how stony a stone is, exactly how rocky a rock is, well then it's doing its job. Uh, and so, like sometimes I'm just like, just verbatim, just saying what actually happens, but you, you, you tweak it just enough that it looks absurd. Like for example, in the first chapter of the novel, I talk about uh, a newscaster on television communicating via another television. Um, which happens all the time, uh, but we're, we, we grow, grow so kind of habituated to it that we don't re- recognize that it's kind of meta and weird. Um, so, so yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of what I'm trying to do is just give a slightly different name to things that already exist. So, uh, Governor Packer is a species of politician that's existed at least for the last ten or fifteen years. Um, I just kind of um, kind of made him a little bit more absurd, uh, but. Um, you know, Laura Potsdam. Uh, uh, she was inspired by actual college students that uh, that I that I worked with. Um, uh, <laughs> Perry Winkle, the media guru, was inspired by uh, by a rejection from an agent uh, who um, who said in in his letter back to me that that uh, readers want um, linear books with with uh, with easily digestible life lessons. And my book wasn't that, uh, and uh, and I was just like, that's such a cynical point of view, and I kind of used yeah. it to to base a character on. So, so yeah, so it's it's not like I'm I'm making these things up out of whole cloth. It's just you know just identifying something that's absurd and 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 kind of putting a spotlight on it. Well, what was what was interesting to me is that after I finished the book, I read the acknowledgments, and you actually had like you know research and a kind of a bibliography for for every salient point that you made uh where you kind of had this kind this this form of exaggeration yeah i i i i kind of liberally collaged uh in certain places so i i felt you know in a book that's in part about plagiarism i really had to cite my sources Um, I was going to say, I have, I've had time to gather my thoughts to re-ask the question that I actually wanted to ask earlier. Oh, cool. Sorry, I, I, meant, to, I meant to talk about the structure of the, uh, of, the, of the book, and I got sidetracked. No, no, it's okay. I, I, I've, I've been able to focus most of it, but I feel like I just lost it in talking about it now. But um, So the structure is a little bit different than what I'm used to reading. I was wondering if, in particular, the character of Perry Winkle was inspired by the publishers who maybe weren't as... Uh, receiving of the structure that you put together and also how much work was it to put this structure together in this particular way once you had all of those pages that you had written over the course of 10 years 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's it was it was tricky. Um, I don't. I'm not really a person who outlines or plans plans ahead. Uh, I know John Irving told me that he he writes the last chapter first, so he knows where he's going, and I'm so jealous of that. I had no idea where I was going. Um, uh, I, I found that when I planned stuff out, it just it was very predictable, and uh, I found that I was just using kind of cliches from the. Oh, I was probably borrowing from television, um, and uh, and so I guess my. My my uh, my idea was was that if I if I could surprise myself in the writing, then hopefully I could surprise a reader too. So I just kind of let let myself explore. Um, the structure finally came together when I realized that it was that I was telling Samuel's story as if it were a kind of mystery, and the reader would get to know everything about the story in the same order that Samuel understood it. Uh, and uh, and so that's that's sort of how it all came together. All these disparate pieces. Um, uh, the 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 organizational logic is when does Samuel get like uh, get this information? Um, but yeah, it was. I did have a few editors who um, who were worried about it. Uh, 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 somebody was was questioning whether I could have a ten-page chapter that was all one sentence, for example. Um, somebody was questioning whether that character, whose name is Ponage, who's a video game addict, uh, um, uh, even belonged in the story. Um, and uh, one of the things that, that made me realize that my editor, Tim O'Connell, was the right person for the job was that in our first phone call before before um, he offered on the book, uh, he, he, he kind of told me why all of these very weird characters and, and, and uh, different subject matters and different themes all belonged in the same book. And, uh, and, and he, I think his quote was something like, um, it's four novels in one, but they're all really good. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I knew that he was right because he understood why all of these, all of these pieces were there. Now, now that's not to say that there wasn't a lot of hard work, um, revising with him, uh, because there was, there was, uh, there was a lot of, um, there were some motive, certain motivation problems in the middle of the novel, getting one character from one place to another that just weren't working, um, that he helped me fix. And we, I went through four full drafts with him before we got to copy editing. So there was a lot of work to do, but, but and Tim really helped me do it. But the basic structure um, uh, was was in place when he saw it. How how long was that process of doing the four drafts before he got to the copy editing phase? That was almost. A year. I know he, he he just he took some time with the manuscript, and and marked it up by hand, uh, and sent me uh, sent me the the, <laughs> the draft and 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 you know it was like printed out you know Times New Roman double spaced and I think it was like nine hundred pages um, and uh, and he had written it all up by hand so uh, so um, he took a couple months to do that and then I took another couple months to respond and uh, and then we kind of went from there so it. It was almost, if I remember correctly, almost a year of of, uh, of revision before we um, before we were happy with it. Now, I had, I had a question about this book uh, in the structure because there there seemed to be it, I wouldn't call them cliffhangers by any means, but there was kind of this like tension that you had instilled in in the novel where you know you kept on you were foreshadowing certain pieces, and you when you were a hundred or two hundred pages in, you realized that there was a mechanism for everything in the story. Everything that you mentioned was going to come back at some point. It was very, very tight in that, in that regard. So, you know, I wanted to figure out why you were saying all of these things that seemed so disparate. I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, 
you know, did you do that on purpose? And like, what was your method of doing it? Because it came out very well. Thanks. Uh, uh, the method was, uh, I, I use this word processing program called, called Scrivener, um, that allows you to essentially, you know how, you know, uh, when you're planning out a, a story, you can put up a big cork board and put all your scenes on note cards. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Scrivener allows you to do that just electronically. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so, uh, it's, this got this virtual cork board. And so I set up all of my sections in Scrivener and, and, you know, that's where I, I, I would type up um, everything that I wrote each day. Um, and it's, it's funny, like I would, I would be writing in one section and, and, and realize, have some epiphany about a character and then go back to the, to the appropriate note card in Scrivener and make a little note to myself to add this in later, Mm -hmm. um, to make those connections. And, and if you do that almost every day for a number of years, suddenly you've got, it's, you've got this kind of web-like creature uh, um, of a novel. Uh, and, uh, and so that was, that was one of the reasons that happened. The other reason was that, um, was that I, I, I was, this is going to sound ridiculous for a 600 page novel, but I, I felt like I was pretty ruthless in cutting anything that didn't belong. Um, uh, uh, after, uh, after I, I finished the first draft of the book, before I showed it to my agent, I spent a full year revising it myself. Um, and I cut something like 400, 300 or 400 pages wow. um, from my first draft. Uh, and then my agent helped me cut another you know, 100 pages. And then, and then uh, my editor helped me cut another 100, 150 pages or so. Um, and so uh, if, if, you're, if you're feeling like the, the things that, are, that are, are, are appearing in the novel are, are being used to good effect, it's probably because you know, there, there was you know, at, at least seven or eight big time revisions to try to achieve exactly that feeling. I I have one last question that I want to ask before we pivot to talk about the story that you struggled to tell. And I feel like you are the foremost author that we've talked about so far that can confirm this sneaking suspicion to me, for me. Um, I have a suspicion and I know that you are or were at one time an avid video gamer. Uh-huh, uh, yes. <laughs> and I have this sneaking suspicion as I start to you know age into my early 30s that I'm going to have to give up video games if I ever want to take writing seriously. <laughs> is, this, is this true? Oh, um, okay. Can, uh, it, can well, they peacefully coexist? It's, that's, that is tricky. I, I, well, okay, let me ask you a few questions. Uh, first, what, what games do you oh, play? No. Um, I play, I don't know if you're familiar with Fallout. I play, yeah. um, call, uh, I play Call of Duty with friends. I play Overwatch. Um, I have played many an hour of Civilization. Oh, I love that game. Oh my god, I get lost <laughs> in that game. It's it's that's one of those uh, like just one more turn and then all of a sudden it's three o'clock in the morning kind of games. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Kerbal Space Program. That's another one. Uh, I'm not. I, I'm very fond of. Don't. It'll ruin your life. It's a space simulator. Okay. But it's it, it it simulates most of the NASA program. Oh my god. <laughs> and it's got um it's got relatively close to real uh physical engines built into mm-hmm. it so you get to pilot a spaceship as if you're actually uh traveling through the atmosphere and into orbit and the orbits are semi-realistic so wow for a kid who went to space camp in fourth grade that sounds amazing 
Oh my God, it's perfect. <laughs> Don't do it. Okay. All right. I won't. Uh, well, all right. To answer your question, um, I, I don't know. It's uh, uh, it's 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 probably in the manner you use them. You, you know how the, there are some people who are just able to have a cigarette at a party and and call it good, and other people, if they have one cigarette, suddenly they're smoking a pack a day. Um, mm. And then what, what your what your you know your the, the limits of your own addictive personality might be. Um, I know that when I was playing video games and and I, I started playing World of Warcraft after all of my stuff was stolen in New York. Um, uh, and, uh, for me, it was difficult for me to play it without playing it hard. You know, yeah. like I, 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 wanted to be good at it. I wanted to be a, a, a top, uh, kind of top flight raider. And that takes a lot of time. And that game requires just a lot of grinding and, uh, just a lot of practice, uh, to be really good at it. Uh, and, uh, and I, and I liked it at the time for that reason that it took my mind off of the real world, which at that time was pretty painful. It was kind of emotionally analgesic, but at the same time, it was taking me away from real life, which I have ultimately realized, um, uh, I, I, I needed to get back to. It's probably not surprising that the, the, the novel writing happened very quickly after I stopped playing World of Warcraft. <laughs> um, and the other thing is just like some of these games require you to stay up late at night or sit in the same position for hours on end, which is just not good for your body. And in some ways, like writing is a physical activity. Like you've got to treat yourself well. You have to, you know, go to bed at a reasonable hour so that you're fresh in the morning when you need to write, you know. So in some ways, like video games really do make those just little biological things more difficult. So I don't know. It, it kind of depends on how much you're playing, but but. It's, you know, the, the, the outlook is not good, as the Magic 8-Ball might say. So I, I have uh, a couple final questions as well. Um, and I, I think the, the star is that I am not a video game guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, do you think that your stumble through, you know, the 10 years it took you to write the Knicks has, has kind of better prepared you for, for the next book? I think so. Uh, I think I have I have a, a process that works for me. Um, I have uh, almost, all of my friends know me uh, uh, as not not really being a writer. You know, for the ten years I was working on the book, I called myself a teacher, not a writer, because I was, I was that's what I was doing. Uh, and so um, it's, it came as a kind of big shock to my friends and and my students, frankly, that that this happened to me. Um, <laughs> and uh yeah so it's it's uh so life still feels other than when i go out on the road touring life feels kind of still pretty normal so um you know the touring will be will be over sometime soon and and uh, I'll, I'll get back to that quiet place uh and uh and kind of do the same thing again i i, I know I, I have 50 or 60 pages of the next book kind of done and uh and at least i don't know my wife is the only one who's seen them so far but but she's told me that they already feel like a book which is uh which is is heartening so um yeah i think it i think it did i think it helped good good you know i don't want to wait 10 years to read you again um <laughs> <laughs> yeah ditto now i i have a question which you're welcome to not answer um okay but but it is something, and it, it, it's you know maybe rude to ask, but I'm going to do it Talking anyway. About taboo topics. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's something that I just think a lot of our listeners uh, don't have the resources to find out on their own. Um, okay. But I wanted to ask you about some of the financial aspects of publishing a book, um, and I know that your situation is probably very different from most, uh, and you don't have to provide actual numbers. 
but I wanted to talk to you about, um, from a published author, what in advance looks like, how it works, at what point do you start getting royalties, what it looks like when you sell foreign rights, movie rights, what percentage does your agent get? And you can use this in like very arbitrary numbers and, and listeners should note that every writer has a different contract. But if you're willing to talk about that, I'd love to you know ask some pointed questions. Yeah, sure. I mean, in a general sense, um, the way a book advance works is, uh, is a publisher agrees to give you a, a certain amount up front against your royalties. And so, uh, with, with, uh, you know, with, with most book contracts, if you, if you have a hard cover, you know, the author gets a certain cut of that. I, you know, I think with most hard covers, it's, you know, for like a $27 hard cover, an author will probably get about $4 or so. Um, uh, less maybe half that for an ebook. And that's, that's after you have earned out on your advance, right? Well, yeah. So, like, uh, like the author cut will be four dollars, but but your publisher will keep that cut until you earn back what they paid you up front, and only after you earn that back do you start earning those royalties for yourself. Um, and I guess the whole cat and mouse game that happens between uh, you know uh, publishers and agents is that publishers, you know, want to be cautious because they have really no idea what's going to sell, um, and agents want to get the best best deal possible because you have no idea what's going if if the if the reading public will buy the book in large numbers so um i had uh, actually one agent in in europe tell me that an author should never earn back their advance um and if they do then the agent wasn't aggressive enough i don't know if that's true or not but it was it's 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 an attitude that's out there um i i tend to sort of disagree with that a little bit like i i'm 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 happy that my own uh, my own um, advance from my publisher was 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 lovely, but not headline making, uh, and uh, and so there was sort of less pressure uh, on the book to do really 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 well, uh, which I kind of appreciated. Um, but uh, I don't know. You ask different authors who've gone through this, you, you'll you'll get a bunch of different answers to that. Um, we. Uh, we sold to Knopf, we sold the North American rights and kept the foreign rights to ourselves. And so my agency sold all of those individually. And that's just kind of random. Like, I have nothing to do with that. I just hear from, from my brilliant um, uh, foreign rights agent uh, who works with my literary agent um, every once in a while saying, like, oh, we have interest from Norway. We have interest from Sweden. We have interest from the most recent one was Romania. Huh. Um and, uh, and, and it's one of those things like you got to trust the people you, that you work with because I have no idea who any of these publishers are. Uh, and so, um, and so you got to trust that, that your, that your representatives are, are looking out for you and, and mine definitely are. Um, what else? Uh, have you, have you sold the movie rights for the Knicks? Yeah, yeah, we have. Um, it's for, uh, for a limited, uh, television series. Um, Ooh. we've sold them to, uh, Bad Robot. Uh, so, oh, awesome. uh, God. It, yeah, so, um, it's, uh, JJ Abrams is on to produce and direct. We've got Meryl Streep on to play Faye. Wow. wow. Um, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, totally crazy. Um, and, uh, and so right now we're looking for, have you gotten to meet them? I'm sorry. I said, is that public I, I knowledge? Just met, I did not know that. It is public knowledge. Yeah. I just met JJ Abrams last week. I was in, I was in Los Angeles for the LA times book festival and I stopped by bad robot. Uh, and, uh, and we had a really, really lovely time together. 
Um, right now, we're 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 waiting to see what network it might land at, and uh, and so yeah, stay tuned. Cool. I hope FX. And generally speaking, if you sell the film rights for a book, you'll get multiple times the advance. I don't know quite how all of, well, it's, it's different because, um, you know, uh, well, it's different for feature films than it is for television, um, for one thing. And, uh, and most books that sell, um, you sell what's called an option. Um, and, uh, and when you sell the option, what that really means is that a studio, uh, will buy an option for, it can be anywhere from like five to $10,000, um, for one year, they have the option of making that into a film. Uh, making that book into a film, and uh, and and usually you, they can renew the option, um, so uh, another you know five thousand dollars the following year, uh, and uh, um, and and at some point during that option period they can choose to greenlight the project or not, uh, and the and the weird thing is I think so many so many properties like kind of sit around being optioned but never being made into made into films because it's pretty cheap like five thousand dollars went to a studio that regularly makes hundred million dollar you know movies is, is not that much to to kind of just keep on keep on hand so you have a lot of a lot of books that are optioned but uh not necessarily made into um made into uh into films so the the the, the advice that i've gotten from 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 my people is just to kind of like you know don't count on anything until you know all the contracts are signed and filming is underway because anything anything can change hmm. that's incredible congratulations by the way i did not realize that this was this has been public knowledge for a while it seems too you yeah, thanks yeah it's 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 uh it's pretty yeah I, I gotta say like um when we got the call that uh that meryl streep and jj abrams were interested in the book it was one of those like pinch me kind of moments well i mean it's not it's not that surprising after i read the thing um but that yeah. is that is huge so congrats uh Thanks. yeah so so at this point we typically ask our guests to discuss you know one story that they've always had had uh, trouble with um mm. you know sometimes it's political religious romantic uh, you name it, um, but you know there are quite a few writers out there that that don't write, you know, for one reason or another. You know, for example, Ponage doesn't have the time to write. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so you know, we we always like to bring in guests and have them talk about that particular story. Um, sometimes as motivation for our listeners to get out there and write for themselves, but oftentimes just because these stories have have, have usually not been told and are very interesting so um we prompted you with this over email so you you've come prepared um and uh i'll leave it to you yeah i i think well the 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 hardest thing for me about writing the Knicks or the the kind of story that was very difficult for me to learn how to write was a story that was dramatic and funny at the same time or that was dramatic but retained a, a sort of sense of humor um, when I was in grad school, I really had two modes for my my fiction. Um, I was either writing sort of absurdist stories in the in the vein of let's say like a Donald Barthelme, um, and uh, and so you know some some gems from this genre of my own writing. Like uh, I, I wrote a story where um, oh uh, the state of Iowa disappeared and reappeared in Brazil. Um, and, uh, and so people in, in Illinois looked across the Mississippi river and there was Nebraska. Um, and, uh, and so just like crazy things happen and uh, I kind of just set up some kind of like funny premise and go with it. Or, um, 
or uh, a story called Fashion Week where uh, the hottest thing on the runway is orgasm and just kind of went with it. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and so like these things would, would get a lot of laughs when I would read them in public. Um, but I didn't, I didn't consider them like serious, you know, uh, I didn't consider them like real literature. When I sat down to write li real literature, um, suddenly I became like, I don't know, Cheever and, uh, and, and all my characters were kind of miserable and melancholy and, and so were the stories. And so it was, it was very difficult for me to marry those two impulses to try to write a story that some, that, that, that a reader could take seriously and that I could take seriously, but still like not lose all of my sense of humor because frankly, those stories were just like bludgeoning my readers with like, you know, like high drama. Um, so yeah, that, that took a long time to figure out how to do correctly. Um, and, uh, and mostly it had to do with me just kind of letting go with certain ideas about what what made real literature, you know, like I had this sort of idea about that, that, that I needed to write like really big, important, you know, um, um, dramatic, heavy, uh, sanctimonious sort of pieces. And, uh, and I guess what I realized was, um, was, was something more akin to kind of telling your own truth. Uh, was it, uh, Lannery O'Connor who said, if you survived adolescence, you have enough material to write a novel. Um, <laughs> That that kind of like just coming going to my own my own sources of meaning and my own sources of meaning making and 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 often that 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 involves humor you know uh, and so uh, and and so um, I guess uh, I guess the Knicks was finally finally me being able to marry those two impulses like wanting to tell a dramatic story but also wanting to retain my sense of humor while I did it. And was this a sort of gradual process or was there an epiphany moment for you? It was a real gradual process. Like, thank, uh, like, thank God, uh, so much of the early work in the Knicks is now kind of buried away uh, because it was really self-serious. Like, you know, I was like, I was, I think I had a sense that I was like, I was going to write about the '60s and and talk about how the '60s protests were so much more authentic and sincere than than the protests of today, and that was that was among my first uh, my first um, impulses, which turned out to be completely wrongheaded. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, it took a long time. Like, I think I would, I would read these things to my wife and she would just kind of nod and be like, that's nice, you know, because they were not enjoyable, you know? Um, so I think it was, it was really just trying to figure out how to write, write about kind of, I don't know, culture in a way that's not just completely off-putting. I think that's nice is, uh, I feel like that's just the universal, feedback mechanism for people who don't know how to say okay uh maybe 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 take it back <laughs> yeah yeah that's nice my wife has a real hard time uh, uh 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 being too critical of my writing and so um i've learned to parse i've learned to translate you know when when that's great versus that's nice and what that really means you know, I, I've, I've had this ongoing uh, discussion where I, I wish that people who didn't like something would just say it rather than try and spare feelings because every time somebody tries to spare your feelings, that's just, you know, another length of time where you keep doing something incorrectly. I suppose, I suppose. But like one of the, one of the really surprising things about, about publishing, publishing this book for me, um, is like on the one hand, never, there's never been a time in my life when so many people have been so nice to me. On the other hand, there's never been a time in my life when so many people have been so mean. 
<laughs> you know, like, like it's like imagine if just all of a sudden hundreds of people posted online about how disappointed they were in your book. You know, it's it's a very strange. It's a very strange feeling. You know, um, uh, and 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 people are should be free to do that. You know, there should be a debate about about books, and people should be arguing it. Um, but it's just very odd when they do it and tag me on Twitter, for example. <laughs> you know, like I've heard so much of this book, but uh, I didn't like it very much. Tag Nathan Hill. Um, and, uh, and so, um, I don't know if I'd agree that you always want people to say exactly what they feel because sometimes it just, like, I've seen that a lot. It's just like, there's a cloud hanging over me for the rest of the day when I like, you know, disappointed some reader. Let me, let me rephrase that. People, people that you, you know and love. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Then yes, that's fine. Uh, even that I would question the wisdom of at most times. I guess. I don't know. I, There's got to be a happy the, middle ground. Yeah, I, I can see finding a happy medium, but I mean, the problem comes when when everybody that is discussing your work is telling you that it's brilliant when it's like very clearly not. Well, so I would I would I would counter with what we discussed earlier, and I, actually, I'd offer this to you, Nathan, as a question instead. the The time you spent, and we already covered this a little bit, but the time you spent writing the self-serious things that you feel like weren't as bad. Do you feel like you'll ever return to those to mine for more material or are they gone forever and how useful were they? Are they to where you are now? Oh, that's a really good question. It's really uh, germane because uh, the, the next, the next book is, is going to be a novel featuring the characters that I was writing about in those stories. Um, the huh. stories themselves are, 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 are going away forever. Uh, but, um, I like the characters a lot, and uh, and and so I'm I'm keeping them because they've been on my mind this whole time. But I'm just I'm telling their stories in a in a kind of in a in a new manner, and in, in a in, in a, I'm 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 telling them kind of the way I'm able to now versus the way I was able to when I was you know 25. So even though uh, the exercise it's, the exercise itself didn't necessarily result in success, there was merit to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, like, I don't most artists have to go through this period, you know, like, uh, you know, in, in, in one's 20s where your your talent has to catch up with your taste. You know, like, I, <laughs> I, I, I knew the kinds of stories I wanted to be writing. Uh, I just couldn't quite do it. And even with the Knicks, um, there were there were places where in my notebook, I wrote, like, putting this off till later, it's going going to be hard. Because I just didn't feel good enough to do certain scenes yet, uh, and uh, and then I would come back to them two years later, and suddenly I felt like I was able to do them. So, in some ways, you you kind of learn how to write just by doing it a lot. Um, I know I, I learned how to write this novel by writing the novel. Hmm. That is such a fantastic quote. I think um, I think we're going to have to 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 leave it at that. Awesome. And thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was really fun. Thanks for your questions. Yeah, of course. Where, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, let me see. I have a website, uh, NathanHill.net. Uh, and from there, you can find me. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. So you can find me that way. And tag him only in your positive reviews. <laughs> Remember that he can say whatever they want. But if it's going to be negative, just please don't tag me. So that was Nathan Hill, author of The Knicks, out this week in paperback. Kyle, what did you think? I thought it was fantastic. 
Uh, I actually saw Nathan Hill on Fox 5 this morning doing some more promotional rounds for the Knicks, which is out in paperback this week. Are you saying that we're just as popular as the local Fox affiliate? Uh, What I'm saying is Nathan Hill might actually be more generous than he initially appears, which uh, I I would think would be hard to do because he's such a nice person in general. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, Anyway, you can find Nathan Hill's book wherever books are sold. It is called The Knicks. It is just out in paperback. You can find Nathan online at NathanHill.net. He's on Twitter, Facebook, Goodreads, and I'm sure you can find him all over the place doing random promotion. Uh, you just have to go into the old Google box. Uh, you can find us online at www.podcast.com. We are available wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, seriously, I spent the last like month going to every single podcast distributor that you can imagine, including all of the ones that you can't and don't want to, and uh, pitching our show. So you can literally listen to this everywhere, except Spotify. That's coming soon. Uh, In any case, uh, we're also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, We have some really cool stuff going on on Instagram. And uh, you can win a copy of The Knicks if you tweet us what you thought of the show at www.podcast. We also have a newsletter at tinyletter.com slash www.podcast. If you don't mind, smash like, hit follow give us a review on itunes it really does help uh i'm not really going to push it because i know that nobody likes to do it but if you have enjoyed the shows for the last you know several years or months however long you've been listening uh we would really appreciate the the review uh we don't pay to advertise on the show so it really does help us quite a bit uh the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from ryan dan of holland patent public library You can find him on SoundCloud. He has a new album coming out soon, and it should be awesome. Uh, You should give him a follow so that you will be notified when it comes out. Uh, The music that you heard right in the middle of the show was from Ben Sound. Uh, You can find him at bensound.com. And in two weeks, we will be back with Bo Lotto, the author of a book called Deviate, and the first scientist to ever come on the show. We'll see you in two weeks.